Good morning. That sounds better. How's everybody doing this morning? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, we started going through this on Wednesday night. But we're going to continue in our study. Most of us have routines or things we don't do or things we do on a regular basis or schedules that we keep, schedules that are based on our predictability, you know, the things that we do as we go about our lives. Things maybe such as go to work, go to school, go to church, things of that nature. But every now and then, and we've all experienced this, life sort of hits us by surprise. It has a way of come crashing down on us, doesn't it? There's things that we don't expect to happen or things that sort of catch us by surprise even though they shouldn't. We get focused on going in a certain direction or have planned and accounted for this time that we've made for ourselves, but then we're hit with it. Maybe it's a phone call uh, from a doctor or a family friend, a co-worker. Maybe the news isn't good. Maybe the diagnosis wasn't good. Maybe the relationship isn't as strong as it should be anymore, but we didn't see it coming. Stand with me as we read through 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 1 and go through verse 7. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exile scattered throughout the providences of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Please be seated. Looking at these verses, there are two key words we're going to focus on this morning in Peter's opening letter. Two words that were found in verse 6. The word rejoice and the word trials. These are found in the same sentence and we ask ourselves rejoice and trials. Should these words even be together? I mean, there are certain words that when we see them together, we go, really? You know, they don't fit. You know, for example, jumbo shrimp or hospital food. That doesn't fit. (laughs) Pretty ugly. Or my favorite, working holidays. I don't even understand how that's a thing. (laughs) But there's many examples. But rejoice in trials. Do we rejoice when the trials pass? Do we get delighted when we can avoid our trials? The fact that Peter would write about these two ideas in the same breath, these two life experiences in the same sentence, shows us that amidst great suffering, we can also find great joy. 
There's a couple introductory words here that we, again, we're taking heed of in verse 6. You rejoice in this. And of course, the question to us this morning is, what is this and what are we rejoicing? It's what Peter wrote about in previous verses. You rejoice in this. Peter knew that because the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers are born again into a living hope. It's a living hope because it's grounded in the living word of God. Our inheritance is like any other earthly inheritance that is, in this regard, incorruptible, undefiled, and is eternal. God has the power to save us, and God also has the power to sustain us. You know, we talked about the importance of foundations this past Wednesday night. And Jesus taught the importance of building our lives on a solid foundation. He talked about two men who built homes. And this was, again, a recap from Wednesday night, but Matthew uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, the two foundations. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. So two homes, one built on the sand, as Jesus put, and the other built on a rock. They both, like we talked about Wednesday night, may have had good or great curb appeal, but the difference was what was underneath the foundation. And again, Jesus said this, the rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed with a great crash. That was the house that didn't have a foundation as opposed to the house that did. Paul says, for no one can lay any other foundation that which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Peter was strong, but his foundation was stronger. His hope, his faith was in Jesus' blood, just like the song we just sang, in his blood, his righteousness. That was his foundation and the basis for his faith. Peter knew the importance of trials. Peter understood them, how they exercise our faith and make it stronger. So again, focusing on these two words this morning, rejoice and trials. As we look around our circumstances, we can't rejoice much in what we see in our trials, but if we look ahead, we can. We're going to examine this very real subject this morning. We hate trials, but we also love them. We love them because of what they produce. We don't love it when we're going through them, but we love when it's all over. The pain stops and the lessons we've learned from them. So let's look at the characteristics of trials beginning in verse 6. And first off, trials are diverse. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have, heard, you have had, great, had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. If you have a King James Version, it says manifold trials. And manifold literally means many colored. No matter what color our trial may be, God has the sufficient match to meet the need. There are all kinds of trials we can experience. Some are small, some are big, some are long, some are short. Peter just sort of sums this all up here by saying, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So at some point we're all going to go through trials. Death of a loved one, loss of a job, emotional heartaches. Trials don't come in one shade, they come in various colors. 
pain wears many faces. So I suppose if we were going to categorize these various trials, we could say that there are physical trials, there are mental or, or emotional trials, and there are spiritual trials. And the Bible talks about all three. First of all, the physical trials. We know the reality of cancer. We know the realities of strokes, heart attacks, birth defects, automobile accidents. In the Bible, we see suffering people. Job suffered. He suffered you know, uh, deteriorating, de de uh, debilitating long-term skin conditions. There was uh, Simon, who was a leper. There are chapters written about diseases and physical conditions that affected God's people. So there are physical trials. Then there are emotional trials. One of the reasons I think we gravitate, uh, gravitate, gravitate towards the book of Psalms is because we can relate to David. It was David who said in Psalm 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. Elijah the prophet, besides being an active spokesperson you know, for God, experienced both exhaustion and depression. And when he ran away downwards towards Sinai, he, he eventually cried out to God and said, It's enough, Lord, take away my life. So absolutely distraught that he wanted to die. And that is an example of an emotional trial. And I think that even the most mature and dedicated believers are susceptible to these emotional trials. But then there are spiritual trials. And we often don't think about these, but they are very real. That's when we struggle over our own sin, our own guilt, where we wrestle with doubts about God or maybe even wrestle with God's timing. That's when we, you know, perhaps wrestle with expectations that we have of God, our own spiritual expectations that are unrealistic expectations, and we feel let down when they're not realized. It was John the Baptist, I believe, who was going through a spiritual trial when he was in prison. He believed in Jesus, and he thought Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus wasn't making things happen the way John thought they should be happening. And does this sound familiar in our lives? So he sends a messenger to Jesus, and here's the question he asked. Are you really the one, or should we look for somebody else? This was a spiritual trial he was facing. So trials are diverse. There's various trials. The reason probably why we hate trials the most is because trials cause us grief. Notice the wording in the text this morning. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while, if need be, you have been grieved. Another translation for this would be distressed or heavy-hearted. It's like you're going through life carrying this load and, or this burden, and somebody or something puts something else on you or something comes upon you. It's seemingly unbearable. Maybe it's weighing you down or crushing you or you're grieved by it. You see, when these things happen to us, this grief, grief is a normal and healthy human expression. Anybody that says if you're a Christian, you need to put on a fake smile and proceed through life with a brave face so that you can just perceivably look more spiritual, they don't know what they're talking about. You're only making the trial worse. The best thing for us to do is to be honest and say what the Bible says. I'm grieved. Even Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. To deny that our trials are painful is to make them even worse. We as Christians must accept the fact that there, there are difficult experiences that we're going to face in life and putting on just a brave face to appear more spiritual is not the right answer. So trials cause us grief. But here's another characteristic. 
and, and I hope you write this down or underline it, highlight it. Trials are helpful. Kind of sounds like the doctor, right? Take this medicine. It tastes absolutely terrible. And I don't know about you guys growing up, but they had, I don't even remember if it was penicillin, but that medicine that they would make taste like bubble gum. I don't know what they thought bubble gum tasted like, but that, it, it was worse. But that's the thing here, you know, it's good for you, something like that. The text says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while, and look at this, if need be. And have we ever thought about this? Peter is actually telling us that there's times when God knows we need a trial. By this little phrase, if need be, is indicating there are special times when God knows that we need trials and they can in fact be and are the will of God. Paul Washer is quoted as saying, I would not trade the difficult years for all the prosperity in the world. God knows what each one of us must suffer in order to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now this is contrary to what modern theology would have us uh, believe that it's never God's will for us to suffer or live your best life now. But Peter writes a lot about suffering, but more specifically, suffering according to the will of God. And here's two examples. I believe they'll be on the screen, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And in chapter 4, verse 19, So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. When we suffer, we have many times no idea what need is being met in our life by a sovereign God. We need to understand something, though. God is always in control. He is, control, he is in control. He's got us covered. He knows what we need. A need is being met through these trials. Now, we may be thinking, what could I possibly need or have that suffering would help? And there's a simple answer for that. Trials correct us. It's a course correction. If you're a parent, you understand and you, you should get this. Your kids start growing up and they start exerting their own private wills. They don't want to do what you want them to do. And if they get really stubborn and really reluctant, you know, if you're a good parent, at some point you're going to correct that child. You're going to correct that behavior. And on a side note, let me say, discipleship starts in the home. If you leave it up to the world to raise, their chil raise your children, it will. We cannot continue, and this is Vody Bauckham, we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar, the world, for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. We need to give our children trials. We need to give our children course corrections. We don't want to break the spirit, but we definitely want to change that will, and that comes through a course correction. Give our children a trial. David said in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And see, this is what he's saying. Before I was afflicted, before I was corrected by you, God, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Trials correct us. C.S. Lewis articulately put it this way. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. So that's why trials are needful. They correct us. We don't always know the need being met, but we can trust God to know and do what is best for us. But here's something else they do. Trials humble us. Pain does something to us to just sort of bring us back down to solid ground. 
We must not think about um, this, how we overcome that trial or somehow get a free pass on the next. The important thing is we learn and adhere to the lesson that he wants to teach us through that trial and no less than bring glory to him alone. So again, trials correct us. They humble us. Trials also strengthen us. When James writes about trials, he's, the, the testing of your faith produces patience. And that's pretty needful. Is I, I struggle with patience. Anybody else struggle with patience at times? Maybe prayer sort of like, God, give me patience now. You know, but, and we laugh, but you know, you know what gives us patience? You know what gives us that, that kind of softening of our characters? Storms, trials, hardships. Trials also have the ability to equip us. They equip us to deal with other sufferers. And we're never fully equipped to deal or comfort with another sufferer until we become suffering people ourselves. Second Corinthians 1, verse 4. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So we go through trials so that we can help people who will go through very similar experiences later on. And we can say, you know, let me tell you how God got me through that. Let me show you the right way. So trials are diverse. Trials cause grief. Trials are needful. That's why we should love them, because we need them. Trials also reveal faith. But to be more specific, they reveal what kind of faith you have. Going back to verse 7. That the genuineness, and mark that word, that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. You know how a jeweler could always tell if uh, gold that was brought to them was real or fake? They put it in the fire. They heat it up. They would heat it up to the right temperature in a smelting pot, and, and you could tell if it was real or fake or how pure that gold was. And you know how you can tell how your faith is like? Heat it up. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. So God tests it. Tests it to strengthen us, but also reveal to us what kind of faith we have. And if you recall, Jesus gave a parable, a story, about different kinds of people who listened in different ways to him. You know, because not everybody receives sermons or truth in the same way. And this is found in Matthew chapter 13. And it's the parable of the sower. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. So that sun coming out, that scorching, that trial, that turning of the heat, that revealed what kind of faith we have, where we might be lacking in our lives. Through trials, God is stretching and strengthening our faith, firming it up, exercising it. So trials reveal faith, the genuineness of our faith. And finally, trials, they refine us. Verse 7, your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found 
And here it is for the end game. To praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God, God pouring all of those experiences into us. At the very end where we see Jesus Christ, our lives will be that much more refined. Sometimes, or often, blessings are wrapped in trials. You know, we go, we don't want that or we're not taking it. Take it. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He took the cup. He drank it. A cup of suffering. Take it. We are either heading to a furnace, in a furnace, or coming out of one. As Warren Wiersbe says, if God puts you in the furnace, his eye is on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. Job, as we just finished studying a few weeks ago on Wednesday nights, went through many painful trials, all of them at God's hand. Again, Job, who suffered so much, said, and this is from Job 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 10, He knows the way that I take. He knows, God knows, the way that I take. And when he has tested me, listen to what Job says here. And when he has tested me, I will come forth like gold. Job understood the truth of the refiner's fire. Now Peter is using the same analogy here as a goldsmith with a smelting furnace. The goldsmith would let liquid bubble up and heat up and burn, and the impurities would just rise to the top. He would take that skimmer, and he would just skim off a little more of the impurities. And he would keep doing that until he got really, really good, high-grade, high-quality gold. The goldsmith knew that the refining process was done when he could lean over the pot of that boiling gold and he could see his reflection. When, we, when he could see the reflection in the gold, he knew he was done. And do we see the analogy here? Romans 8.29 says, We've been predestined to be in the image of Jesus Christ. And so the heat rises, we come through a little more pure, a little, hopefully, you know, a little bit more refined, a little more in the image of Jesus Christ. There's one final thing that I want to draw your attention to, and that was in verse 6 again, various trials. And I mentioned earlier that in the King James Version, or, or it's translated manifold trials, many colored trials, that, that's the general idea. There's one other usage of that term also in Peter's book here. And to compare this verse with another, we're going to share this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. As good stewards of the varied grace of God, the manifold grace of God. There are manifold, varied trials that we go through. Peter talks about the manifold grace of God. In other words, for every trial we go through, God in His sovereignty has provided the match just for us. God is not like the guy at the hardware store, the auto parts store, that when you go down there has absolutely every tool, every part you need, except for the one you need to finish the job you're trying to finish. And we've all had that experience. God has every tool. God has all the parts. Various trials, various shades of His grace. So how do we react to those trials? And I'd like to share this. This is something that came up in a class I did a few weeks ago. There was a child also having a hard time in life. The child went to the parent and said, life is so hard, I just want to give up. And truthfully, I just don't have any fight left in me. I don't want to struggle anymore. And that was a red flag for the parent. They took the child into the kitchen and into their home, and, or in their home, 
and did something very unique. He took out three pots, filled them evenly with water, and put them on the stove. And pot number one, carrots. Pot number two, eggs. And pot number three, tea leaves. The parent turned up the heat and for 20 minutes let that water heat up, let that water boil, let the flames get to, that, to those pots. Taking the pots off the stove, they put the, uh, put the carrots in a bowl, the eggs on a plate, and the tea in a cup. The parent said to the child, touch those carrots. What do you notice? The child says, well, they're soft. The parent says, now crack open that egg. And the child took off the shell of that egg and noticed it was very hard. Now take that tea. Take a sip of that tea. The child took a sip of that cup said it's actually pretty good, very flavorful. The parent said, let me ask you this question. Which are you, the carrot, the egg, or the tea? The child says, explain that to me. I just don't understand. Well, the carrots went in hard, and they came out weak, wilted, and soft. The egg went in fragile, but that liquidy center became, became out stiff and hard. But the tea, the tea is the only substance to actually change the water that it was in with a fragrance and a taste that you had just admitted was quite flavorful. So again, the parent asked, which are you, the carrot, the egg, or the tea? All of those substances experienced the same adversity, the same heat for the same amount of time, but they each reacted differently. So how do we react in a trial? Does that trial weaken us? Does it wilt us? Do we get stiff and hard and push people away afterwards? Or do we, by those experiences, those trials, release a fragrance or a flavor that is unmistakably the imprint of Jesus Christ in our lives? I think it's time we stop telling God how big our trials are and start telling our trials how big our God is. And as I invite the band back to the stage to close this in song this morning. Let me close by saying this. Though the trials He gives us, we may at times not like them, we may be grieved by them, but we should be glad because He cares and loves us enough to refine us. He's correcting us. He's strengthening us. He's equipping us. He is testing our faith so that we may come out stronger to the honor, praise, and glory of Him alone and in refining us like gold. Bow your heads with me while we pray. Father, we come to you this morning in humble submission. We trust in your sovereignty in these trials, Lord, and that you put us through to strengthen us for your glory. Lord, we lift up your children, our fellow brothers and sisters whom are going through various trials this morning with traveling, death of loved ones, situations of work. We don't always understand what we're going through, Lord, but we find peace in knowing that you're in control. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Mm-hmm.